If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Six Wives are just such a fascinating story. It's like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives. Because it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England, everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. When it comes to juicy historical sagas, they don't come much better than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch. But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? Hello and welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and with the help of expert historians, I'll be peeling back those layers of mythmaking to take a fresh look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and the history of England. And in this episode, we've reached Henry's sixth and final wife, the survivor, Catherine Parr. Catherine's story is often seen as a dowdy postscript to an action-packed tale, but as we'll uncover, there's actually a lot to unpack in Catherine's life. From great sacrifices, rebellions and plots, to love matches that turn toxic. To tell us more, we're joined by royal historian Estelle Peronk, an assistant professor and author whose latest book is Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. And I asked Estelle to introduce us to the woman who would outlive Tudor England's most temperamental king. She's a lucky one. She's a survivor. 
of Henry VIII. Though we say that, but we we don't realize that when we call her the survivor, we kind of put her in a box. I think Catherine Parr has so much to teach us about queenship and about what it is like to be a wife. I mean, she has four marriages, so I mean, surely she can teach us a little bit about that. But also, uh, I think it's important to realize that she had a life before Henry VIII. And I think also when we talk about her life after Henry VIII is very significant because she married finally for love, but that love is so toxic. She made the best out of it. I think for me, Catherine Parr is the teacher of how to make lemonade with lemons. And along with Estelle, I was joined for a final time by our guide to all things Henry VIII, Dr. Tracy Borman. Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. And as she told me, the Henry that we meet at the beginning of his final marriage is a man far past his prime. His days as a playboy renaissance prince are long behind him. He's a man really in despair. He is very depressed. He's unsure of himself. This great, larger-than-life character who's full of strident self-confidence. Now he's full of self-doubt. And he's suffering from depression. He's suffering from physical ailments arising from that jousting accident of 1536. So for the first time, he's not going into this courtship full of confidence. In fact, he's full of uncertainty. Henry was in his early 50s at this point. But as Tracy told me, being in your 50s was not the same then as it is now. For the time, Henry is in old age. And it really hurts me to say that because I'm similar age to Henry VIII at this point. But he would have been considered an old man and not one who's likely to live all that much longer, particularly given his poor health. And it's hardly surprising, since the last few decades had not been ones of rest and relaxation for the king. He had been through the mill, the marital mill, although he'd put women through that mill as well, to be fair. So he's trying still desperately to recapture some of the glories of his youth. And you have to say, when it comes to marriage, Henry is ever the optimist. After the disastrous outcomes of his five previous marriages, why didn't Henry just admit defeat? Was he still on the hunt for that elusive spare heir? I mean, it's more of a pipe dream. I think if if he's hoping for that, he's almost certainly impotent. There was no firmly attested pregnancy in his previous marriage to Catherine Howard, certainly not one with Anne of Cleves, whose marriage he didn't consummate. So the heir question, I think, is less important to Henry now than companionship. And also, I think he's been so hurt. I mean, bear in mind like, that he did worse to Catherine Howard. But still, allegedly what she did to him, the, you know, the treason, the treachery, the, the cheating. And I think we have to remember, in a patriarchal society, it's the worst thing that can happen to a man, right? So here, he's definitely not looking for another young, beautiful, he's not into that anymore. He still wants love. And in the search for love, safety and companionship, Henry landed on Catherine Parr, 
a well-educated daughter of a family that was well-established at Henry's court. At this point, Catherine was in her early 30s and twice widowed, something that we'll learn more about later. She is a member of his daughter's household. This is where he meets all his women, really, apart from Anne of Cleves, at court, a member of one household or another. But rather than going for it and being this kind of chivalric lover, he sort of hangs around Catherine sort of sighing and looking sorry for himself and almost hoping that she'll just take pity on him and marry him. In Catherine, Henry saw a wife who would care for and support him. But she actually had much more to offer than that. And I would like to kind of dispel that myth straight away that he marries Catherine so that she can nurse him. It's not that at all. Henry wants to be in love. He wants the companionship, the intellectual stimulation of a partner. And that's what he finds in Catherine. He still wants love. And I agree with you. Catherine is not this old woman who's going to nurse him, as Tracy said. It's definitely not. She has much more to offer. But she's also a widow. And she had two marriages before him. So he's not looking for a virgin. And I think it's important to note that. And he's not looking for that type of purity. But he's, he's looking for someone who is aware of what a marriage is and who is aware of the importance of the role of the wife. And Catherine has mastered the role of the wife, especially in her second marriage. As Estelle mentioned there, Catherine Parr was Henry's first wife since Catherine of Aragon, who'd been married before. And not just once, but twice. Her first marriage took place in 1529, when she was just 16 or 17. Her husband was Edward Berg, who came from an illustrious gentry family with reformist tendencies. So the first marriage, honestly, I'm going to characterise it a bit like a teenager, even if they're not teenagers, but, you know, teenager love, teenager relationship. They're actually under the control of the fathers, Sir Thomas Burke. So Catherine doesn't have a real place as a wife of, you know, of an important noble. But her, her first husband is going to die. We don't really know why. He was really healthy. A few months later, he was dead and she's going to remarry soon after that and her mother is dead as well so she she knows that she's penniless she needs a husband and she needs a powerful one in her search for a powerful second husband Catherine landed on John Neville Lord Latimer a man two decades her senior who already had two children of his own after the pair were married in 1533 Catherine became mistress of Latimer's family seat Snape Castle in Yorkshire. But while she may have found financial stability with her second husband, his wealth didn't protect her from political turbulence. And this man is extremely Catholic, extremely conservative. She's been exposed for years now about the reformed ideas. But Catherine Parr is the mistress of knowing her place. And it's an important lesson that she's going to learn even more with Henry VIII. Lots of things are going to happen to her at that time. Very unpleasant things because her husband is going to be involved in the biggest rebellion under Henry VIII's reign, the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536. The Pilgrimage of Grace was a popular uprising that kicked off in Yorkshire before spreading across the north of England. Triggered by Henry's break with Rome and the dissolution of the monasteries, 
It was one of the most serious rebellions of the Tudor age. And in a demonstration of just how much political and religious allegiances could flip-flop in Henry's reign, Catherine's then-husband, Lord Latimer, became embroiled in the rebellion. It's not clear whether he joined the rebels by choice or under duress. And he later reflected on the uprising as, quote, a very painful and dangerous time. But that may well have just been because it was politically expedient to do so. Catherine's allegiances during this time also remain elusive. But regardless of whose side she was on, the uprising was an immensely tumultuous time for her. At one point, she was held hostage in Snape Castle along with her stepchildren by rebels who were unconvinced of her husband's loyalties. And when the revolt was ultimately quashed, Lord Latimer only narrowly escaped from King Henry's fury with his life and his reputation in tatters. But this close call held important lessons that would serve Catherine well in later life. These events, like, completely made her aware of the danger of having religious ideas, of Henry VIII's reign and of his rule, because he can be very merciful and he can be ruthless and cruel. And I think with, with Henry, when you see with all these wives, he can show, like, one face or the other, and you never know who you're going to find in the morning. In 1543, Latimer died, leaving Catherine a widow once again. And now, she was finally hoping to marry for love. The object of her affections was Thomas Seymour, a brother of Jane Seymour and uncle to Henry's son and heir, Edward. But any hopes of marrying Seymour were swiftly sidetracked when Catherine came into the orbit of the king. And so when she met Henry, she doesn't want him. And when she realised that he has an interest in her, and it's not going to be the big courtship, but he makes it clear, and what Henry wants, Henry gets. And she accepts it, and he's attracted to her. She's not attracted to him. But we can believe that there were like some form of intimate relationship between the two. And I think, yes, it was more companionship. He was uh, drawn to her for her wits, for her intelligence, but also, I mean, she's so caring. I think that's why it makes me like her so much. She's so caring with the people around her, with her family members. She accepts her stepchildren like if she's a mother herself. She has such a soft side that makes her so likeable. Henry's previous marriage to Catherine Howard had come crashing down when events from her past had resurfaced. But when it came to her former and even current love interests, Catherine Parr was an open book. This time, Henry was going in with his eyes wide open. He was aware of everything. And we've already seen this pattern emerging with Henry and his wives. He always chooses someone who's the opposite of his last wife. And yet again, here we have it. Catherine Parr, she's pretty much twice the age of Catherine Howard when he married her. She definitely has a past, but it's an open past. She's been twice widowed. There's little secret about her love for Thomas Seymour. So Henry knows what he's getting into. This is a decision he makes, I think, more with the head than with the heart. And so actually, 
that's a wise move for Henry. It always turns out better for him when he uses his head above his heart. But rather than sort of turn a blind eye to the whole Seymour thing, he simply just gets Seymour out of the way. This is somebody he can easily overcome. He's the king. No man can stand against him. No woman can stand against him. So even though he is suffering from a severe lack of self-confidence at this stage, he's still got enough of it to think, yeah, Catherine Parr, I can have her. She's my next wife. And with Henry's mind made up, Catherine was left with little choice but to give up the man she loved. I don't think you have any choice when Henry makes a move on you. I think at the end of the day, you do have to comply to whatever the king wants. He gets Thomas Seymour out of the way, so he's going to be like the Lord Admiral and he's going to be sent away with the Navy. But Catherine Parr is happy with this because even when Thomas Seymour comes back at court from time to time, she avoids him. She knows exactly what happens to people watching. She didn't want to give any other possible enemies, detractors she could make. She's very smart about this. Not even the, you know, the first grumps of gossip. So she really keeps her distance with Thomas Seymour. And Thomas Seymour does the same. Because Thomas Seymour is also smart. And he also knows not to cross the King of England. Everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. I think there's an important point to be made here about the amount of agency that Catherine had when it came to marrying the king. Like several of Henry's other wives, Catherine may not have had any choice in this decision that would come to change the course of her life. But once it had been made, she was an arch-pragmatist. She knew the rules of Henry's game and she made sure to play by them. I think Catherine was intelligent enough to read the writing on the walls. She wasn't going to stand up against Henry VIII. No good could come of that for her or her family. So she simply did her duty and agreed to marry Henry. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. On the 12th of July, 1543, the couple were married in a fairly private ceremony at Hampton Court. And rather than the instant spark of Henry's last match with Catherine Howard, it seems that this union began as more of a slow burn. He was choosing a companion this time. He was choosing a woman who he knew he had things in common with. They were intellectually on a par, no pun intended, I'm sorry. But they could have conversations, they could have debates. And I think he was drawn to Catherine's intelligence and she espoused the new fairly radical religious ideas at a time when Henry actually was retracting back towards conservatism. So she was perhaps going to push him a bit further on uh, along the path of reform. I think given that Henry VIII is allegedly impotent, I don't think there was much physical passion. But I do believe what Tracy said about being intellectually stimulated. And I think it's very interesting that he chose someone that he knew had reformed ideas. I think everyone was knew that Catherine Parr was close to people who had reformed ideas. When you, he knew that Catherine Parr loved reading, which is which is something really weird for women, you know, in the 16th century. What are you doing? But, uh, so he knew all of this, and I think he was drawn to that. He has always been drawn to intelligent women, and I think he he was he's always been drawn to debate and discuss things. Now, in terms of affection with Catherine, I think he had lots of affection for her. I can't imagine them having like hot, wild, you know, intimate relationships. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. But yeah, so I think it's um, it, the first years of their marriage is a true companionship. I think there is a, there's even trust because Catherine became more and more confident. And we can see this growing confidence reflected in the fact that Catherine used her role as queen to push forward her own projects. Something that isn't widely known about Catherine is that she was, in fact, the first woman in England to publish in English under her own name. And a total of three texts, devotional books and religious reflections, are attributed to her. As if all of this wasn't enough to be getting on with, Catherine also put in the legwork with Henry's children, working hard to establish good relationships with her new stepchildren. Let's face it, Catherine Parr, is a childless mother. But when you look at her life, it's not surprising that she was very close to Mary, Elizabeth and Edward. She had had stepchildren before and she had been very close to John and Margaret Latimer of a second marriage. She's always embraced this role of a mother. That's what I'm saying. Catherine Parr is such a caring personality. She really has a big heart and a big good heart. And when she uh, becomes Queen she doesn't understand why the royal family is so divided. And she's, she'd already been close to Mary because she had been in a, a hassle. So, like, obviously, there were some ties already between them and good relationships. So it's easy for her to make sure that Mary is, is close to her father again. But it's going to be a bit trickier with Elizabeth who is still struggling to find her place at court, to find her place in her father's heart. But she loves all the three children equally. But you know what? I also think, and that's me being a bit cheeky, but I think we can be. I think also Catherine is thinking, well, there's this young boy. And I think she loves him. She loves Edward. I think she's genuine in that. 
But Catherine is not this just this woman like who has no personality, no desire, no ambitions. That's not true. That's not her. And I think in the end she's looking at this young boy thinking, well, the father is an old man. He's not going to last forever. And I think she sees herself as almost like the new mother of Edward the Sixth. And it's definitely what she tries to build. And she doesn't just build it on a personal level because she's a good person. And though she is, she also builds it because it's going to serve her own interest of political agency because she wants to put things further with the reformed ideas. She ensures that Edward has very strong reformers as tutors. She's the one also like who pushes on Elizabeth which type of translation she should write, which type of book she should write. So I think we have someone that sometimes was just thinking, oh, the good stepmother. She's definitely a good stepmother. You know, I'm not faulting her here. But I think we don't understand that you can be a good person and still have motives and still have ambitions. And I think that with Hedwig VI, it's very clear that when she's not made regent, when he changed the will, when Henry VIII changed the will, she's furious. And I think deep down inside, it's because she had built that type of relationship with that in mind. Can you imagine Catherine Parr, Queen Regent and Lady Protector of the Realm? That would have been pretty cool. Fortunately, it's not what happened. But the idea of Catherine Parr as Queen Regent wasn't a crazy one. Because this is actually a role that she did take on in Henry's reign, just a year into their marriage in 1544. Henry had actually appointed her Regent when he went off on one last gasp attempt at military glory in France. Bit of a waste of money, let's be honest, but he left Catherine behind at Hampton Court and she was playing queen. She was there in command. Henry left her in sole command. That's how much he trusted her. She's Regent General of England. She's the one who's making sure that the army receives the money they need, the weapons they need, the supplies they need. Obviously, there are men around her. She has a council. It really annoys her. But she's doing a fantastic job. The letters they exchange show that they both trust each other. He's very happy with her. She gives us a glimpse, a very small glimpse, but still a glimpse, of what it's like to be a warrior queen. It's when she decided to come with Henry in 1545 when there's going to be this massive invasion from the French. And she's going to witness the Mary Rose sinking in a Portsmouth Arbour. And she's going to be there with Henry, seeing the fight, seeing war. And I think that shows her courage, that she can be fearless, that she can be in charge. And Henry VIII saw that. While many of Henry's courtiers were won over by their capable new queen... Others were concerned about the amount of influence that this intelligent, ideas-driven woman might have over the ever more vulnerable king. I think she was very popular. She made friends with pretty much everybody she met. But of course, the people she didn't make friends with were the religious conservatives at court who absolutely were opposed to this new marriage. They thought saw Catherine as a real threat to everything they stood for. They knew that she was quite a radical and she had these very forward ideas about religion. And so behind the scenes, there was a fair amount of plotting already early in the marriage against Catherine. It's important to understand just what a hot topic religion was in England at this point. In breaking with Rome, Henry had shattered the nation's religious convictions into pieces. 
And now there was endless infighting about how those pieces should be put back together again. While some were bitterly opposed to the idea of further religious change, others were pushing for even more reform. And these reformists found a sympathetic ear in the king's new wife. Some of Catherine's closest companions had strong reformist links. She herself advocated the reformist idea that religious texts should be circulated in English. And she was even known to debate with Henry on religious matters. Catherine's about as extreme as you can get along the path of reform. She's an evangelical. She has this circle of like-minded ladies at court and they're meeting regularly and discussing quite radical religious ideas. And that's why she's seen as such a threat to the likes of Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, his partner in crime, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, both very dyed-in-the-wool Catholic conservatives. They really don't like this new queen. She stands for everything that they are bitterly opposed to. In the minds of Gardner, Howard and their like, this new queen was dripping poison in the king's ear, encouraging him to radicalise policy and turn away from the more conservative factions at court. I mean, they're justified in thinking that because everyone knows by now how influenced Henry can be by the women in his life, particularly his wives. And here he has a wife who arguably is the most intelligent Catherine Parr is a real intellectual powerhouse and people know that Henry listens to her, that he respects her and she probably spends more time with Henry than anybody else. When it came to her controversial religious opinions, Catherine may have let her guard down too easily. Catherine became way too confident during her time with Henry VIII, probably because she knew that he trusted her. The problem with Henry VIII is that you can't trust him. He changes his mind all the time. So she comes close to being in real danger when people are... Obviously, she, she's she's also like a writing. So she, she wrote prayers and lamentations and it was published in 1545. So she makes her ideas quite public as well. We know that Henry VIII, though he allows it, he, you know, he lets her do it. We know that he's also like an angel, but he's not sure. He's like, mm, eh. Do I really want to encourage women reading the Bible in English, writing in English, having their own opinions about reformed ideas? It's something that's starting to startle him. And in 1546, religious divisions caught up with Catherine when she became the target of a plot to turn her husband against her. But it's not just against her. The other target is Thomas Cranmer, who has built his career around reformed ideas, but also around Henry's will, right? He's really following what Henry wants, at the same time pushing it the way he wants, Thomas wants. And Thomas Cranmer and Catherine Parr are good friends. They do have lots of similarities. So when they try, like the other advisors are trying to bring down Thomas Cranmer, they're going to bring down Catherine Parr. But Catherine Parr realises it quite quickly. She realises that Henry VIII is going to change his mood, that he's becoming colder and more distant with her. And she's not stupid because she has the experience of the first five wives. She knows exactly how it can go downhill very quickly without any warnings. So Catherine is going to do what she does best. She's going to be a submissive wife. 
So when she's going to be interrogated by Henry about her beliefs, she's going to say that everything he wants to hear. That yes, you know, she has reformed ideas, beliefs, but that he's the master and she's the wife. And that when they debate or discussed that she thought it's something he wanted because she, he can teach her, because she's here to learn. And she completely put herself into submission. And Henry VIII is reassured he's the man, he's the big man in control of his wife. And then he realized that she's no threat at all. And so when everyone believed that it was going to be her, her downfall, actually they were in the garden discussing, and there's, I think there's Stephen Gardiner who came to them because he believed that Henry VIII was still on his side. He said, my lord, I'm here to arrest the queen. And he, oh my God, Henry VIII defend his wife. Like, who gave you this order? Of course, everyone knew who gave the order. And he, he makes Stephen Gardiner look like a fool, but also humiliated him completely. And that's Catherine Parr winning. That's Catherine Parr saying, you thought I was a dum-dum. Actually, I'm not even your equal. I'm superior to you. I saw what you were doing. I know how to manipulate Henry. Because believe it or not, we are close to one another. I've known him for years. He trusts me so I can get his trust back. And she, honestly, she played Henry really well. I love that part where she plays the submissive wife when actually she's nothing like that. In winning Henry back over, Catherine had pulled off a very skillful political manoeuvre. But just how close to danger did she really come with this plot? Could it really, as Estelle suggests, have heralded her downfall? It was so close. It was so close. It came within a whisker. I mean, we can compare it to other historical events like the, the gunpowder plot failing because there was a tip-off. Well, Catherine heard very last minute about the plot against her, about the intention to arrest her uh, for heresy. And she was able, as Estelle has painted such a vivid picture of, to throw herself on Henry's mercy, to play an absolute blinder. I mean, she plays the submissive wife down to a T. She's had years of practice. And so, as Estelle said, she she convinces Henry, you know, I was only doing this for you. I thought you'd welcome the debate. I wanted to kind of distract you from the physical pain you're in by sort of trying to learn. But really, I need to learn from you. You're the master. Henry then feels good about himself, but it'd been perilously easy to get one over on Henry for his enemies to persuade him that here's another wife who's about to betray him. But with the plot against her successfully diffused, Catherine had learnt an important lesson for survival. I think perhaps there is a shift. It's a shift in Catherine's outward behaviour because she's learned that she needs to be much more discreet now. But I think behind the scenes, she knows what she's doing still. She's still having those meetings with these sort of radical, light-minded women. She's still encouraging the king's children down the path of reform, or at least Edward and Elizabeth. She knows she has no hope with Mary when it comes to religion. But she's playing a much more cautious game with Henry. But as for Henry himself, really now, he's in the last months of his life. So this is kind of a lower priority for him. He's focusing on his health and he's just trying to get through each day. Henry's health had been steadily declining for a while. He'd been walking with the staff since 1540. His ulcerous leg wounds refused to heal and had to be cauterised by doctors. The king's eyesight was also failing and he had spectacles specially ordered from Germany. 
those surrounding Henry were all too well aware that the king's days were numbered. Well, I think they'd been aware for the entirety of his marriage to Catherine Parr. And as Estelle says, I think Catherine had been preparing for this. She'd been ingratiating herself with with the future king, Edward, and I think she had real hopes of being regent. But she wasn't the only one planning for the future. Pretty much everybody at court was doing exactly the same thing. And it's a snake pit now, the court of Henry VIII, with everybody trying to get one over on their rival, all trying to second guess what the king's going to do. And Henry himself at the centre of this, less the puppet master than the one who's being manipulated by all of these men, mainly men, around him, who are thinking to the future and trying to really safeguard their own positions. Catherine had only just saved her own neck, and now she was being thrown into the snake pit once again, as the vultures began to circle around the king's deathbed. So after that, she really very careful of what she's going to say publicly, how she, she's going to appear publicly. But what is very clear as well is that the men around Henry wants Catherine to stay away from Henry. So she's not going to be allowed to see him for the final time. She's going to be kept away from him. It's a way to make understand Catherine her place, that she's just a sixth wife, that she's nothing important. She's not the mother of her children. And also, quite frankly, it was a way to ensure that she could not grab power. It was a thing to ensure that she would not be made regent because what if, at the end of his life, Henry VIII change its mind again on his deathbed and say, actually, I want Catherine to be regent, you know, and the lady protector of the realm when Edward is not of age. That would have been a disaster for all these men who wanted to grab power. So they really kept her away. She's very hurt by that. She knows what they're doing. She's really not pleased. But Catherine, as I said, always finds a way to just go on with what she has and to make the best of what she has. Estelle mentioned there that Catherine's enemies feared she would be appointed regent after Henry's death. But were those fears merited? Was she realistically in the running for that powerful role in Edward's regime? She absolutely was. And Henry trusted Catherine implicitly, I think at least until that incident where she was almost arrested and probably sent to her death. So I think if Catherine had been able to get to Henry in his last weeks, days, I think probably she would have triumphed. He would have left the regency of the kingdom to her, not to a group of men. But as it played out, Catherine and Henry spent Christmas of that year apart. And in Henry's will, Catherine was relegated to the role of Queen Dowager rather than Regent. By the beginning of 1547, as all this power-broking was playing out around him, the king was sinking further into decline. On the 27th of January, Henry agreed to a meeting with Cranmer. But by the time the Archbishop arrived, the king was no longer able to speak and only to squeeze Cranmer's hand. He died the following day at Whitehall Palace. The 38-year reign of the behemoth of the Tudor age had come to an end. After six wives and six episodes of this podcast, we're finally reaching the end of the story. For Henry, at least. But of course, it was not the end of the story for Catherine. She now had to secure her position as the court was thrown into disarray. And the first task 
was to put on a good show in the role of grieving widow. She played it well. When I say it's a relief on a personal level, let's face it. I mean, did you like him? Probably. But can you really like someone that you can't fully trust? Can you really like someone who would throw you to the wolves if he could? You can't. And I'm sorry, but I think that, yes, there's a big part of her that is on a deep, on a personal, intimate side that is extremely relieved. But obviously, publicly, she's the perfect widow. With Henry now dead, Catherine could revert back to her original plan, to marry the man she loved, Thomas Seymour. But she had to be cautious how she went about it. Thomas Seymour comes back as well at court at the moment. She makes him wait. She's not right away jumping into it, though they do kind of marry in secret a bit too early. We have a glimpse here of Catherine's ability to manipulate people. She's going to manipulate Edward, go to him and discuss the marriage, and he's going to give his blessing, thinking that they haven't done it yet. But she knows that once she has the blessing... You know, the Lord Protector, Edward Seymour, would not be able to do anything. It's almost like a new youth for her. She's so in love. This this is a passionate relationship. They are drawn to each other. They are attracted to each other. They are passionate about one another. And Catherine is completely in love and blind as well to the man she's with. And here comes the sting in the tale of Catherine's story. She'd finally got what should have been her happy ending. Reunited with the man she loved after all those years apart. But, in reality, happy endings are rarely that simple. He's the one who destroys her, actually. She makes three dutiful marriages and then, yes, follows her heart, makes this very passionate marriage to Thomas Seymour and it starts to unravel with alarming speed and it's not just Catherine who's damaged by this, it's her younger stepdaughter Elizabeth who stays with Catherine and Seymour in their new home in Chelsea so she goes to live with them and then she becomes embroiled in scandal when her new stepfather Thomas Seymour starts to pay completely inappropriate attention towards her. The full extent of what happened between Seymour and Elizabeth remains unclear. But it was reported that Seymour had asked the 13-year-old princess to marry him. When he was rejected, he instead married her stepmother Catherine shortly after. Elizabeth's companions later reported that when she lived in Catherine and Seymour's household, that Seymour would visit Elizabeth in her bedchamber in the mornings before she was fully dressed. They recounted several occasions where he acted inappropriately towards her, including jumping into her bed and was even said to, quote, strike her upon the back or on the buttocks. It's hard to say how much Catherine knew about her husband's behaviour towards her young stepdaughter. It's reported that she was in fact involved in some instances when Seymour tickled Elizabeth in bed and wrestled with her in the garden, But after one incident where Catherine reportedly discovered Seymour and Elizabeth embracing alone, Elizabeth suddenly left the household or was sent away. For Catherine, it was a somewhat bleak postscript to what had been an impressive life and was to prove pretty much its concluding chapter. Because Catherine had become pregnant. With Seymour's shameful behaviour hanging over her, 
On the 30th of August, 1548, she gave birth for the first time to a daughter named Mary. But like Jane Seymour before her, Catherine died just a few days later. It's very sad because I really believe that it's this whole story, this final marriage that really destroyed her. He broke her heart. She died heartbroken. I believe he loved her, but I believe he, his love was extremely toxic. And I think I, I felt really sad for Catherine's end, who had wanted to be a mother all her life, finally managed. And then she lost everything, her love, her baby, and her stepchildren as well. Catherine was in her mid-30s when she died. And that short life had seen four marriages, a tumultuous regime change, and two close calls with coups and rebellions. Catherine Parr is often dismissed as the wife who didn't do much except survive. But her story can tell us a lot about the rich and complex lives that many women led at this time and how those lives were so frequently defined by the choices made by others. And what about Catherine herself? How should we remember her today? She's a brain. She's a big brain. She's the wisest of the six wives. But I think that once you look further than that, you see that she can be manipulative. I think uh, you can see that she's good at court politics. And she pretends not to be. She pretends to be innocent, but she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows exactly who she's talking to. She knows how to further her ideas, how to influence people. She influenced the kids, even if she didn't influence Mary. But in many ways, she tried. She tried to influence Mary. But Catherine Parr is just a real political agent of Henry VIII's reign, and I think she should be recognised as such. As Estelle says, Catherine Parr was... I think, the cleverest of Henry VIII's wives. She was an intellectual force to be reckoned with. On the surface, she was deeply conventional as a wife. She knew her duty and she married Henry VIII out of a sense of duty. But underneath that, she was a radical, a free thinker. She was so far ahead of her time. I hope we have made people realise just how fascinating a woman Henry VIII's sixth wife really was. Like the five women who went before her, Catherine Parr left her mark on Henry's reign and Tudor England as a whole. I hope that by sharing the stories of these six very different women, we've given you an insight into not only what it meant to be a queen in Tudor England, but also what it meant to be a woman. These women seized opportunities for power and security and backed causes they believed in. But they were also operating within a system that policed their behaviour and saw their lives determined by the decisions and whims of men. It's easy to see why we've fallen in love with the six wives. Their stories are revealing about wider historical trends. But let's be honest, they're also packed with intrigue, excitement and high drama a potent mix that's proven impossible to resist, even 500 years on. Looking back over the six wives of Henry VIII, it's become even more clear to me than it was before why we're still so obsessed with them. Such a fascinating story. It's a story of drama. You couldn't make it up when it comes to Henry VIII's marital history. But I think what has really struck me 
is we should all just stop thinking of these six women as the wives of Henry VIII. They are each fascinating in their own right and as individuals, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr Tracy Borman and Dr Estelle Peronk. Estelle is a historian and author whose latest book is Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Tracy is a historian, joint chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. If you enjoyed this episode on Catherine Parr, then head over to historyextra.com forward slash six wives to watch a brand new video with Estelle Peronk answering key questions about Henry's final wife. There you'll also find videos with all the historians who've appeared in this series on the six wives and the key questions about their lives. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden and Ben Hewitt. It was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Josette Reeves. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.